development. Uh, and so this is a, uh, an issue that uh, cuts across uh, health, food security, uh, food aid, uh, trade. Uh, and so we wanted to, we are very grateful to our friends at Commonics, because um, we said to them, I said, you know, we think this is a really interesting issue, and I think just by the turnout uh, on, a, on a Friday afternoon, this is pretty good. So you all get a gold star for showing up on a Friday afternoon, but I think it speaks to the, that it speaks to uh, a number of different issues. Um, I, I just, we were having a little bit of a pregame. I'm just gonna list some topics. Blockchain, drones, 3D printing, 5G, traceability, GIS, all these things. When I, I got started in the aid business 20 years ago, none of those things were, were possible. I, I remember a conversation with my friends at Mars about 10 years ago saying, you know, one of our goals is we're going to be able to trace cocoa beans down to sort of the, the zip kind of pretty close to the farm. This is 10 years ago. Come on. I said, you got to be kidding me. And I don't think that they're necessarily there, but they're like two weeks away from being there, as far as I can tell, or something like close to two weeks away. I don't know if it's two weeks away or two years away, but it's coming. Uh, and the way in which uh, there was a, a charitable group that got together about 16 years ago uh, to look at how to revolutionize the logistics of, of emergency response and the kinds of approaches that they were thinking about 16 years ago, I think, are certainly an improvement from the way sort of the humanitarian system thinks about the logistics of it. But I think there's been sort of, there's a coming sea change in that as well. And so I'm really glad I've got my friend and colleague, Ramina Bandur, who's a senior fellow here at CSIS to help moderate this conversation. I think we've got a really interesting group of panelists. But I think um, these issues are going to impact development and prosperity and cut across a whole series of different issues. And so again, I want to thank my friends at Commonics for working with us on this and, and, and helping us uh, bring this really interesting conversation together. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to my friend and colleague, Ramina. Hello, good afternoon everyone. Uh, welcome to CSIS. I am Romina Bandura, I'm a senior fellow here in the Project for Prosperity and Development. And today we have a really interesting discussion on how technologies are impacting global value chains. Uh, we have an excellent panel today. I'm going to introduce um, them uh, very shortly. I just wanted to um, just reiterate what we know about you know, value chains and what the definition is. So um, I quickly looked at the OECD, and uh, the OECD refers uh, to va global value chains as the organization of, of production of, of into different stages of goods and, and services across different countries. So increasingly, we've seen um, goods being uh, um, divided into different stages, but we also have services. And here we have different sectors representing us today, and the private sector, and also USAID with uh, the humanitarian uh, arena. So um, just to uh, tell you, Tom Coleman is uh, Watson IoT and Supply Chain Management Practice Leader at um, UPS, uh, sorry, U.S. Public Service of IBM. Uh, Dio Chimera is the Ghana Country Director and of the USAID Global Health Supply Chain Program um, from uh, leading it by Chemonics. Um, then we have Greg Olson. He's Program Operations Divisions Director um, for the Office of Food for Peace at USAID. 
And then Amgad Shehata, Senior Vice President from UPS Strategic and Public Affairs. Uh, what I'm going to ask uh, our distinguished panelists to do is to offer about five minutes of um, introductory remarks uh, to um, just place your views on you know, how technology is impacting your, you know, your sector. And then we're going to open up a discussion and the last five, 15 minutes we can do some Q&A from the public, okay? So please, maybe we can start with Dio. Okay. Um. Sorry. I need to repeat my names. Uh, Dio Gracias Kimera, um, uh, as introduced the country director for global supply chain PSM project in uh, Ghana. And uh, um, my background is in pharmaceutical, public health, and health economics. Um, um, the routine work we do in supply chain, and I'll speak from it from the perspective of in-country supply chain in the developing countries, um, though Ghana is approaching middle-income you know, middle countries. Um, we've had situations whereby um, most of our decisions we make have uh, implications on the life of the communities that we serve, that uh, if you don't make the right decisions at the right time, somebody is not getting the right medication that they want and therefore they have interruption in their treatment or what scenario it can cause death. On the other hand, if you have unknown fear and you stock too much commodities, you end up spending money and resources that can be lost, you create financial risks, either through commodity expiry or absolute commodities. So technology is advancing the way we are accessing information and how we are analyzing it and accessing it for decision making. So um, transparency within the system is increasing. Usability of the data becomes easier because um, we are coming in an era whereby data was owned by uh, the source person. And therefore, until they volunteer it to you, you cannot use it for the next decision making. But with advanced technology, where we are seeing blockchain, digital twin, and all these initiatives, we are all accessing data from the same platforms, and therefore we are able to make decisions uh, even if we are not in the same position as those who are generating the data. Previously, rely on those who are generating data. Uh, in Ghana, we are also seeing uh, new developments like uh, you know, drones that are coming up to drop commodities and other initiatives. And all these are lying on accuracy of data, which is driven by advancement in technology. Thank you. Greg? So my role inside the office is to oversee the procurement process for about 1.4, 1.5 million metric tons of food that goes to probably 25 or 30 countries around the world, many of which are in very hard to reach places. So uh, a rather unique supply chain compared to some of the colleagues up here, but works on the same principles. So that's kind of been the starting ground for us is to explore ways we can adopt some of those commercial techniques into our operations without having to reinvent the wheel and pay a lot of money. Um, Department of Agriculture, who, who buys a lot of the food that, that we use in our programs, has spent a lot of money in three years going through a business process to look at requirements, build those into the system, you know, to be able to do some forecasting, matching demand to supply. I don't want to get too into the weeds on the supply chain uh, 
lingo and lose everyone. But the point is, is to build that into how the process works rather than having to go outside and, and get it from elsewhere. Uh, we have a small working group inside the office that's focused on IoT, Internet of Things, connecting to devices. Some of that may end up looking like uh, sensors inside of ships to monitor humidity and temperature, both of which are very detrimental to the, to the food that we ship. Um, possibly being used to check to make sure the right markings are on bags for both customs purposes and more importantly for expiry dates. Some countries have requirements that say you have to have six months left on your best if used by date. It's like on a carton of milk, the date that's printed on there, same idea. You have to have six months left or we won't let it in. If that bag is marked wrong, you have a big problem. So being able to use some IoT or AI to go through there and, and look at those things, we're talking millions and millions of bags. There's no way any one person can look at those things and get it all right. There are some technological advancements that we think we could use to, to do some of that stuff. So a lot of it's on, on kind of physical side as well as on the planning side and being able to connect to different data sets. You know, we have our procurement data, our partners have their systems, our suppliers have theirs, our ocean carriers have theirs. What I would envision is some kind of big platform for all of that to be fed into so we can see the supply chain start to finish and connect not just the data but to those kind of pieces of, of tech on the ground that are sensing locations and heat and humidity, things like that. Those are some of the, the big things that we're working on right now. Um, just recently, two, I think two days ago, put QR codes on a bag for the first time to see if that's going to work. Mm -hmm. What that does is basically I can use my cell phone, not my cell phone, while I'm out in the field in Uganda to find out who was the manufacturer, who shipped it, when did it arrive, what was the agreement number, something inside the office for, it, for us to trace things. Right now that process takes about three weeks. If you have a food quality, food safety incident, that's way too long. People are going to get sick. People are going to die. So it's, it's tracing it to that level of being able to, to provide some guidance to our partners. Hey, you, you have an issue. You need to stop rather than waiting three weeks to do so. Uh, so I, I think it's kind of like the full range of things. But for us, it's pretty much the clean slate. I don't want to say the blank slate. We're doing a few <laughs> things, sir, there. But just to be part of this panel is kind of an indicator of, of what we're doing internally to turn a new leaf and to kind of you know, invent some things ourselves and not have to reinvent others that we think have some direct application to what our programs are doing. Thank you. I'm gone. Thank you. So uh, Romina and Daniel asked, you know, how has it changed uh, our business and our industry? I see my colleague at FedEx sitting in the front row. Is DHL here at all? Okay, then I could speak badly about the... <laughs> So UPS started uh, about 111 years ago as a bicycle courier. Uh, what are we now, do you think? 111 years old. 111 years old. <laughs> We're back to being a bicycle courier. How come? Last minute. It's faster, somebody said. Why is it faster? Traffic. So what's wrong with traffic? It's dense. Cities, urbanization, globalization has created density. How do you resolve that issue? Audience participation time. Drones. <laughs> Say again? Drones. Drones. There's another D word. Driverless cars. There's another D word. Data, right? Management, traffic management, data, demand and supply. Congestion. What else is the world concerned about right now? Speed. Say again? Speed. Speed. There's something else. Privacy. 
Privacy is a big part of it. Security, the, the environment, right? So we're all, when we walk out of here, we're all living in a city that's supposed to be breathing, fluid. What else has shifted in the world in regards to digital data? What are you all, other than really important business people, your consumers, and what's happening with the consumer world? Consumer demand is now ruling, right? You want everything. Your little phone in your hand is now your tablet to the world. So I just say to you, when we were asked, how has all this changed? Well, the world has changed, right? We're a microcosm of how the world's changing. So you as consumers are flatteners. You're demanding things. You're pulling things from everywhere in the world. And data is kind of the backbone of how we are now getting things to you. We know more about you. You give us permission to know more about you. You're demanding different things from the world than you've demanded before. And you want it how fast? Now. Correct. You want it right now. So our business has totally changed. Our industry has totally changed. And we have to leverage the data that you give us permission to use to tailor your life to you when it comes to movement of goods, services, and reach. So we started as a bicycle company. I'm not saying we're a bicycle company now, but we're using bicycles because we have to get stuff to you really fast in really busy cities in a manner that the world has evolved to. So I say to you, back to blockchain, back to drones, uh, back to 3D printing, all those things are necessary for every business. UPS now has 3D printers at the end of runways around the world. People send us a CAD drawing. We have plastic beads. We have a 3D printer. We have 3D printers in UPS stores. We take the CAD drawing. We make the good, and we deliver it within hours. I just saw a demonstration of a 3D printer in an operating room for knee replacement, where they have the patient on the table, and they have to make a last-minute decision in regards to knee replacement. 3D printers are a solution, right? Blockchain. We'll talk about blockchain a little bit more, but uh, it's a flattener because in the old days, everybody used to have a different lingo. If you're a business in the room, if you remember the old days of uh, SAP and you had to have an SAP system, right? A proprietary system to manage your data between your accounting, your shipping, your procurement. Well, now blockchain is a flattener where it allows you to have a common language, not only within your business, that's an inside, uh, inside business blockchain, but a permission blockchain amongst your suppliers, amongst uh, customs or public entities, and amongst other vendors. You all speak the common language. So blockchain and technology and data makes the world a different place. I'm going to give the last example. Um, we talked about drones, because everybody wants to talk about drones, driverless cars, robotics, right? So we started on a pilot a few years ago, three, four years ago in Rwanda, where we had difficulty using our vehicles or our bicycles or our motorcycles to get things delivered. And we chose a high concentration issue, which is blood plasma for remote villages that couldn't get blood. We piloted a, a work program with a company called Zipline. Today in Rwanda, for three, four years later, 40% of the country's blood supply is driven and flown by drones rather than by physical means, right? So when I was asked, how has your business changed? I wanted to give you some examples. 
Our business has significantly changed, and it's driven by data, technology, and demand from all of you sitting in this room. Thank you, Hamdard. Uh, Tom, please. Hey, so anybody know what IBM started as? <laughs> a bicycle company. No. <laughs> a tabulating company, actually. And shockingly, we're not back at tabulating. But I will say, what, what was that tabulating company doing? It's data. So if you'll hear the digital side of it, you also hear data running through everything. And so that is a, um, we view data as the world's most important natural or not natural, but asset in the economy these days, right? You know, whoever can really harness the data into real value will win those equations in most cases. So a little bit about IBM. I'm a little different in this case is that IBM both has an internal supply chain and an external supply chain that we work for clients, right? I'm on the services side of clients, so I focus on the external. I'll get on that. But before I do in the internal, uh, we don't make computers anymore. However, we do make lots of microchips. So we have to very complex supply chain around there. And then we do continue to make physical things. The physical thing we're working on now that we'll be, are starting to produce is quantum computers. And so very hard, complex supply chain. And how do you build that um, in a very expensive need? So internal supply chain is not going to go away. I don't think that's what people think of IBM. They think we outsource everything. It is actually still a large portion of that. And just looking at it from a procurement's perspective, internally we spend about $35 billion a year internally just on procurement within supply chain. And externally for clients, we spend another $70 billion. So we spend over $100 billion a year on the procurement aspect alone. So where I've seen supply chain shift, right, is if you said 10, 15 years ago, supply chain often was about lowest cost. It is a cost center. How can we drive the cost down? You cared about speed. You cared about quality, right? You know, but you were being driven of how can you do cost. IBM internally did that ourselves, right? Really trying to drive that. And so when we moved that shift, and where are we going now? It really is what is the operational and strategic advantage, right? So when we went for a low cost, if you were thinking of it globally, we moved to where we thought was the low cost center, not necessarily where is the strategic input. So we now have centers around the world, but part of the, yes, it is cost savings there, but part of it is what strategic advantage does that provide us? Does it get it closer to our suppliers? Does it get it closer to our buyers? Is it in their native language, right? We still have all of those challenges. And so, and supply chain obviously is operational, but from a UPS or other side, it really, supply chain these days can be a strategic advantage for your firm, right? Amazon is the best example of that, of how they've driven their supply chain to be a defining portion for them. So you may be expecting me to talk about a lot of different technologies. Um, I can go on a variety of them. We didn't talk much about the Internet of Things. It can add a lot of value, um, you know, et cetera. But what I'm going to take it on is a little bit is so with so many technologies out there now and so many ways that you should be improving your supply chain or could, I'm sorry, could be improving your supply chain, it goes back to me of what are you actually trying to do? Do you know the outcome that you are trying to solve from your users and is what is going to add the most value? Because if you're just using a technology, I see it all of the time with my external clients who get gung-ho, pick a technology, blockchain, IoT, data analytics, they go down, they're going to have a prototype, it is going to meet the exact requirements that they were 100% confident of what people wanted, and it's going to have so-so business outcome. Because no one actually thought about what are we trying to actually solve truly to get ahead. If you're trying to solve for what you're doing today and today's processes or today's problems, you're missing the mark, right? You need to be leading to what you need to go to tomorrow, 
even if it is your incre incremental solution today, is somewhere along the path, right? So thinking about that. The other part from a supply chain perspective and any technology product really is, you know, have we thought about, and you know, Greg was talking about this earlier before when we were in, in the room, is what is the change management, right? You are, still have people throughout this process. We can talk about AI, we have Watson, right, you know, that we use in a lot of cases, but you're gonna have people in the process for, uh, uh, we talk about, you know, it's not so much our AI is gonna replace jobs, but it's gonna augment and change how you do your jobs. So if everyone in this room is thinking about how AI is gonna do their, uh, enable them to do their job differently, you're on the right target. If you're worried truly that AI is gonna replace everything and take over the world, that's not at least our point of view of where we see it headed. So um, think about you know, the change management and then also the people. If you can get your people on board, you want them to learn continuously, keep on what is new and how they have a tr um, passion truly for learning, those are the people you wanna hire in to work on your supply chain because that is gonna be the best chance for long-term success, not investing in one particular technology. Um, I you know, you mentioned different technologies and the, the opportunities that, that they bring. Can you talk a little bit about the, the challenges of implementing, you know, certain technologies within your supply chains? And or uh, is it all, you know, um, very easy, I guess, <laughs> fast, uh, you have the right uh, skill set. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about the challenges? Um. There are several challenges. Uh, some of these are limited to uh, the environment where I work. But uh, like we're talking about advanced technologies which can uh, increase data uh, you know, uh, um, efficiency and utilization. But uh, we still have communities that do not have access to internet. So when you are thinking about in, in the part of the world where I live, when you are thinking about advanced technology, you also have to think about offline solutions. Like when you develop an automated uh, logistics management information system or health information management system, you need to think about how it will work in the smallest community down there where there's no access to internet. So that's one of the challenges that most of the technology that has advanced, it doesn't take care of that last leg where somebody doesn't have access to ICT infrastructure and uh, access to uh, internet. Uh, the, 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 the other challenge we have is that uh, the focus tends to curve uh, to be more on the quantitative data than the qualitative data, and we lose a lot in terms of interpreting that data. On, yes, I have data, I have nice graphics, I have nice dashboards, but how do I use them? So the qualitative data which comes from the people who are down there who have the experience is lost in between because the focus of the modern analytics tend to focus more on the quantitative. So as you design new technologies, think about how to utilize more also quantitative data, quantitative alongside qualitative, so that the qualitative can help you to interpret. Otherwise, we have a lot of data that has not been translated into information. Um, the last part, uh, my colleague talked about it, is the change management. I think uh, the challenge we have faced mainly in Africa is whereby people drop a bomb and they tell you this will work for you. Mm. This technology is good for you. But uh, if uh, in the process of introducing new technologies, you try to build in change management aspects whereby you make people understand how the system will benefit them, mm. not how it's going to benefit you. If you are UPS bringing uh, um, services uh, to Ghana um, uh, and you are bringing up a new technology based on uh, artificial intelligence and others, 
helping the people to understand that this will lower your cost, this will help you in this aspect will be good. In the health sector where I work, actually we are disadvantaged in that uh, the workers at the lowest level mm -hmm. down there, um, they depend a lot on the programming done at a national level, donor funding, collaboration. So they don't have access to information on how all that translates into their work environment mm -hmm. and how can they can benefit from the information. So I'll lastly comment on the one of the challenge is that we've been having little data use at source where people at the lower level of healthcare enter in data, especially for supply chain, in order for the upper level to use. So in developing new solutions and technologies, we are focusing more on how do you use that at source, and then using these other modern uh, solutions like blockchain to tap into that data which is available uh, in a chain. Mm. Yeah. Ramina, I'm gonna just say uh, the, the cooperation between public and private sector is the challenge. Mm -hmm. You know, I'll give you an example. Uh, to I bought a house a few years ago. I was able to do all of that digitally. I, digital signature, digital contract, etc. Cross-border packages. We still have to have paper invoices, wet ink signatures to receive an $11 package. There, there's two different worlds here, and, and governments really need to figure out if they're going to hinder or help this whole digital world. Um, I just came back from uh, Geneva, where 77 countries are now negotiating a, a, an e-commerce protocol, a digital protocol. Hopefully, we're trying to help them by feeding them real-world realities of how the world of commerce works, how cross-border digital data works, so that they can create regulations and policies that kind of harness this new world order. So the big piece for us is, to your point, there's an inside supply chain and inside technology maximization, which we do at UPS and other companies do, but it's the blend of the, the public world and the private world, and how do you make that as seamless as possible to kind of propel society forward? Um, you, you mentioned faster learning. Um, do you see that, like, there's been a lot of talk on, you know, technologies affecting the future of work, and, um, and a big, Part of the discussion is skilling um, of you know the workforce. So, do you see that as a as a challenge in in the adoption of the like the right set of human resources to be able to adopt these these technologies? It, it absolutely is. Um, so we have um, so internally for us we have a sh renewed focus that started several years ago of on training. There was a time in IBM where. There, long time ago, there was huge focus on training. People would go for training literally months on end. They would just go away from their job, right, you know, and do, we don't have that luxury anymore. But now there's a focus on all of our training staff, and it is always thinking about what are you doing and moving ahead. There also is a focus of, even if you're not gonna do something on your day-to-day -day job, you need to be knowledgeable enough what you're interacting with so you can understand how it will use and benefit to you, right? So I've had a lot of cloud training. I personally don't do cloud work on a day-to-day -day basis. I'm not an IBM expert in cloud, but they still want you to be trained and aware of it so you can really take advantage of it. I think that, that the key really is though teaching people how to learn and having the desire to want to learn. We have, I have still have people who work for me who really are very much experts in one area. They want to remain experts in one area. And so how do you motivate them that they actually want to learn something new, right? And it is a generational issue too, is how you're going to convince someone uh, from one generation about how they want to learn versus the dynamics and expectations of someone in a different, maybe younger generation are 
um, different, but you have to touch people in different ways. So it comes back again to the human element a little bit. Challenges you're facing in, in these technology, adopting these technologies. Sure, I'll kind of touch on, on both yeah. sides, and I'll start. We'll pick up from where Tom talked about the skill sets. Now, in the humanitarian world, there's a, a applicability for everything we do everywhere else, but this has not been an area where I think we have excelled on the technological side. It's slowly starting to develop, but it's not really cotton hold yet to where there's a core group of people inside the office. I can think of maybe two or three inside of our offices, you know, maybe 150, 160 people that really understand these issues in depth, and then it becomes a change management issue. If you have three people who understand something that applies to everything, but how do you get the word out? How do you convince people that that's really something that you need to devote some resources to and train against and really ingrain in your programming that it's not just a little add-on because it's going to you know, improve efficiency by 2%, whatever it might be. It has to be a core part of what we're doing. It's not just the technologies, but the people. My biggest fear is that we go out and procure some new crazy system for supply chain management and everybody's just pushing buttons. Mm -hmm. I don't understand how this works. I don't understand the processes behind it. If something breaks, doesn't work, which happens all the time in our world, we're stuck. So that, that would be my follow-on to that one. One of my big concerns and the challenges is information is still very siloed. We have our system, our partners have their systems, host countries have their custom systems, our private sector partners have their systems, and there's no real good way to get visibility across any of those, which means that it takes a long time to, to figure out from one stage to the next how things are moving or how they're not is usually the bigger problem. So that's the one thing that I think would be probably the most beneficial for us is to have some kind of big data solution to come in and not have to you know reinvent all those data sets but get them to talk to each other push that up onto a big platform that everybody could see all the way through from the, the example I gave before is a, a pinto bean supplier in Minot, North Dakota, all the way to a refugee camp in Djibouti that you have the ability to see through four or five different phases of that all the way down to you know, that, that bag level of, of what's being distributed. So I want to go back to the point that Amgad did at the beginning uh, with the uh, focus on the consumer um, and um, how have you seen uh, the, you know, technology impacting, you know, consumer choices, and uh, in turn, how is, how are the consumers, um, what are they asking you, you know, uh, what are some of like the demands from? I mean, they're not asking you, but like, what, what do you see are some of the trends that that are um, affecting the, the consumer choice, and maybe, yeah, you know, of course, it's different from you know, the humanitarian and, and health perspectives uh, from, from your view, but yeah. Well, I mean, I will say, and Dio can definitely add a lot more, but from the health perspective too, it does matter on consumers, yep. right, a lot. If you don't get the patient wanting to take the drug or, or, go, or making it easy for them to get mm -hmm. to it, it, it doesn't matter how fast or how good your supply chain is to get it there, you know, you have to convince them, right, mm -hmm. and so, um, I think that's important. I think the other thing about consumerization, which is different, is we all have our personal iPhones. I actually don't use paper anymore. I keep things on my phone. But from like a work perspective, and we're talking about lots of people, when you're apps and you're being asked to do your jobs, they're not at the same pace, right? So people are bridging two different lives where they're doing so much on their phone, they feel like they're so dynamic there. But a lot of people I know still just use their iPhone for email and to check face, you know, Facebook, right? You know. 
like that's about it. So how do you really get this into the core of your business to really add the value so you don't have to be stuck, right? And I'll use an example, I'm part of my job as asset management is, you know, we still have a lot of technicians who are being asked to go repair things throughout a supply chain or being deliveries and they don't have all of the, you know, details on their phone, right? They may be able to actually know like where they're going or their address, but do you actually have their manuals? Do they have recommendations of how potentially something could be fixed? Can they chat real time and not, you know, in a secure manner, not just use WhatsApp, right, you know, because they will use a commercial personal solution if you do not provide them something that's within the business and um, security and privacy constraints. Um, I would say that a, um, the globalization has made the information more accessible to consumers at a pace above the policy makers. So the, the policy framework does not exist on how to guide and regulate uh, a number of technologies that have been introduced. So you find that even where technologies exist, you find, uh, let me use finance, and they come in and say, oh, we have to audit and we need your manual records. But you have advanced to an automated system, and the audit team, which is coming to audit you, want to look at a paper which was signed by the finance director. So the policy framework has not yet moved at the same pace as the globalized information to the consumers. The other example I can give is like, for example, in managing HIV, uh, there are modern uh, medications available, accessible in the developed world, mm -hmm. and the consumers do technology, they do know about them. But uh, back where I work, still we have guidelines that uh, prescribe what can be affordable within the communities that government and donors can support. So you find that you have a consumer who has known about the latest you know, medication available, and uh, you have a prescriber who is restricted by the guidelines that are put in place by government. And therefore, you have that mismatch that uh, the consumers are advancing faster than the policy framework. So the only thing I'd add to that is um, we also have to be careful about regulations and standardization, because I would say to you, public policy can never really catch up at the speed of this technology. So I think one of the things that we need to make sure is the frameworks that are put in place have guiding principles or parameters that allow technology to flourish and not suffocate it, right? So for example, um, the three global integrators, FedEx, DHL, and UPS, recognize to your point that you need a flattener in order to speak the same common language. And blockchain for us enables that common language. So rather than us going in all different directions, we've gotten together and said, let's create a protocol or a standard amongst us three global integrators so that we can talk to customs authorities in 210 countries in the same language. So we're trying to flatten, the use the technology to flatten the language of 210 countries' customs authorities. They might not be able to go as fast as us, but we're being proactive and saying, we're giving you a solution because we understand the speed of business is moving at such a velocity that they can't catch up. So I just say to you, I think there's a, there's a balance between over-regulating and trying to cumbersomely try to create a process versus leveraging technology to get you to the next frontier. I'll add in from our perspective, I think there's two things I would point out that are more about 
the experience that the beneficiaries that we're serving go through. Um, so food quality, food safety for us is paramount. You send out bad food, you're going to do some harm. Basic humanitarian principles. Are there things we can do to stop those incidents before they leave the United States? Are there things we can do to control incidents when they're out in the field? And the answer is yes on all fronts using some of the technology that's all been, been well developed. Uh, another one is, you know, kind of efficient, dignified means to distribute food. And one of the great ideas that two of our partners are working on a food ATM. So this is not your automated burger joint on K Street that doesn't have any staff. It's actually a machine that distributes a specific amount of food to beneficiaries when they need it instead of having, you know, a, a grandmother walk with 110 pounds of yellow split peas on her back because that's the only way she can get her food. So I think that there are a number of things that are being, you know, used in our world to help, you know, dignify the, the experience and, and make it a little bit more user friendly. It's not necessarily demand driven, but it's one of the things that I think is going to mm -hmm. be a game changer for, for part of our programs. It's not going to be used everywhere. It's more for refugee camps, things like that. But there are some things out there that I think are directly applicable to, to our beneficiaries as well. Um, Greg, you mentioned um, food quality and, and the importance to, you know, um, measure all the, all the steps. There's this concept of traceability. Um, I wanted to ask the panelists what how does uh, traceability what is it? What, what you know how does it impact your um, your your value chain and if you could give us like a you know real uh, life example where it applies. It's one of the big challenges we have in the uh, health commodity sector because uh, um, uh, Pharmaceutical products, uh, some of you, I mean, most of us use them when you go to CVS and buy a commodity. But a paracetamol can be called many different names. So what is happening in the public sector facilities, uh, despite the fact that uh, most of the manufacturers include barcodes, uh, because that technology hasn't reached all levels where we work, mm. products are stored in different warehouses and given different names. One calls it cutgut chromic, another calls it chromic cutgut, another calls it a different name or by brand name. So when you are aggregating data and analyzing it, you find it very difficult to make forecasts that are accurate because you are treating one product as five products. So uh, what we are doing in Ghana, the, the one network system which we, we, we bought into uh, to develop for our logistics management information system, we are integrating it with GS1 standards. So that uh, we can uh, introduce that standardization mm -hmm. so that the nomenclature of products along the chain is the same. So as we advance with technology, then we also have to think about that uh, the data entrant need to use standardized information. Because without that, then you'll be looking at uh, dashboards and analytics which are misleading. So um, adopting the uh, uh, GS1 uh, standards is one way we are trying to integrate traceability. And it's important in the health sector because um, some pharmaceutical companies, after um, manufacturing and shipping the commodities, they do recognize probably that there was a mix-up in the batch or something went wrong, and they record the products. They will give you the batch number, and you can trace it up to the port of entry. So if you don't have traceability, you are likely to keep all the commodities that have moved down the chain to the clients, mm -hmm. uh, and they are consumed while there is a recall. So for reverse logistics, uh, traceability is as important as for uh, uh, um, the supply chain uh, system.
give you two quick examples. One I feel really shallow about when we're talking about humanity. Louis Vuitton came to us, or, or Nike that came to us, and you know, you are consumers and you wanna make sure that that product that you received is the actual product. So traceability and provenance uh, and blockchain is a really important thing, not only for you as consumers, but also for customs authorities, right? Are we moving goods that are uh, intellectual property rights violations, or are they truly what they were supposed to be? So there's a whole um, effort around the world right now to really look at IPR and IPR and knockoffs and fake goods. That's that's the consumer side of things. On the traceability will improve the oh, that, it's critical. Yeah. It'll have to improve that, right? Um, on the on the healthcare side of things, UPS about a, a decade, a decade and a half ago realized, hey, wait, we're moving a lot of packages around the world. We're tracing everything. Um, this is kind of a, a consumer commodity transaction. Why don't we look at our systems and, 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 and leverage them in a different way? And we started a healthcare practice about a decade ago where we went to all the, the pharmaceutical companies and the generic companies and said, you're good at creating these products. We're good at logistics. Why don't you stop doing the logistics and we do it for you? And so the major brands that you would know about, we now house in warehouses. We pick, pack, and ship. We do the recalls. We hold the data. We know where the drugs are, where the drugs aren't. And the precision of that, if I could say, is obviously, you know, we have a slogan in these facilities. It's, it's not a package, it's a patient. Because you get that one wrong, that's a big wrong, right? We move. We move skin to the operating table after burn victims happen. If, if that moves more than two degrees in that transportation cycle, th that's not going to work. So you take what you do and you, you figure out a way to use data, which is what we're talking about, technology, and the, the blend of the physical world and the data world to kind of create this precision world where you know what you're getting, you know when you're getting it, you're getting it how you're getting it, and, and you as consumers are pushing us to a level that you know, we haven't reached before. And data allows you to do that and technology allows you to do that. Yeah, from our side, obviously the food quality, food safety aspect is crucial for that traceability piece. We talked about that a little bit, but you know, as stewards of taxpayer dollars, making sure that the money that we get actually is used to you know, feed people that need it around the world, being able to trace that all the way through for oversight reasons, plus just to make sure our programs are effective, I think is almost as important as that. And there's some technologies that can be used to, to do both at the same time. There, there's different, you know, threads can be woven into bags that go into places where you can't get people in. So there are circumstances where you, you can't physically have a person go do it, but there are some technologies out there that in the right environments and the right circumstances, I think would be a, a big benefit to the oversight aspect of what we do as well. So, so to wrap up traceability, I think there is still a lot of work to be done and there's cases where it is going really fast and there's cases where it is still, especially at the last mile um, in developing countries is a work in progress. Um, I think part of that though is when you're gonna get um, traceability to work, it is the carrot and the stick. Right? There's some cases where it's the stick of compliance, we're not going to sell to you, we're not going to buy your product, right, you know. But then there's just as important as the carrot of making it easy for someone to report on it or someone to get that information to them. Um, so 
Speaking of, you know, on the most advanced um, best example uh, is IBM worked with Walmart to develop the IBM Food Trust. It's a blockchain-based solution. Um, Walmart um, was really interested in this because, for example, food recalls, food safety, very important to them. Um, one, so their customers have trust. Also, two, to make sure that there is not um, excessive damage or waste, because if you don't know where things are bad, you will err on the side of safety and just have to destroy a lot of unnecessary product. So they started off the process um, with mangoes. Um, bringing into their supply chain professionals, tell us, you know, what farm this mango came from, or this box of mangoes, right, you know, came from, you know, and go from that. It took them roughly two weeks to get it down to that level. Um, once they um, established the blockchain solution, got the incentive, both the carrot and the stick, to get people involved in it, they can now tell in six seconds where mangoes are from at the core um, and narrow it down a lot. Um, and so that's the other part which we haven't talked about, but, you know, I'm going to talk about it is uh, blatantly is part of all of these solutions in the supply chain. We're all a network, right? It is the network effect. You need to get more people bought into it. If you're trying to do something from a supply chain perspective that is solely, you know, a stick saying, hey, we're going to do it or I'm going to do it my way and I don't care to like work with my partners, you won't get the benefit as that you could otherwise. Um, I, I, switching gears a little bit, uh, another. Um, um, discussion that has been out there is, is this fear of um, some of the activities um, as a consequence of, of the interaction of these four uh, IR technologies, that a lot of the activities that were outsourced and offshored will be reshored back to, you know, advanced economies. And, you know, there are, there are countries that are a little bit, well, it, maybe it doesn't apply to your sectors, but I wanted to ask you, like, have you heard this? Is it a thing? Is onshoring or reshoring, um, you know, a thing in your in your industry? You know, uh, I would tell you from the trends we've seen over the last decade, um, we just go where our customers want us to go, and we're still going everywhere. We're going to continue going everywhere. So, um, as you know, you've heard, globalization has lifted billions of people into the middle class. Mm -hmm. um, People want goods, people need goods, um, uh, standards of living's increased. So I would just tell you the cycle seems to still be uh, one of a trajectory of higher demand and continued supply. So I would agree with that and add on that it is really um, the fourth industrial revolution, um, which is always a mouthful on 4IR, I can't say really either, or industry 4.0 is what we refer to it as. Um, is it is just going to change things, but it is just going to continue, I think, to get more demand than anything else. If the world continues on the trajectory we're on, right, there'll be more. And so I think there will be some onshoring for certain products. It also is where is the innovation and demand, and is there a reason to do it here, right, you know? Um, maybe it is not even a cost, but it's an environmental friendly, right? Is there is there really a reason to produce a very large good halfway around the world when we could produce it, you know, down the road, and maybe it costs, you know, a few bucks more to do it there, right? Um, but then the other side, which you asked about earlier, is skilling. If, you know, if the advanced economies do not have the skills in the workers who want to do that type of work, it will never come back onshore because there won't be anyone to do it. Um, one, of, one of the key issues uh, when you're working in developing countries, is the, especially in the health sector, is the issue of equity. That, uh, in some industries, you can choose where you work uh, depending on what data analytics tells you. In whole sector, in developing countries, uh, equity is critical 
because most of the healthcare is financed by government and supported by donors. So uh, people who are in advanced, uh, advantaged uh, you know, locations should not have uh, um, different level of healthcare as compared to those who are at the rural sector. So the issue of equity remains very, very important. And therefore, as um, we go into the fourth uh, um, uh, generation of uh, industrial resolution, a revolution, we need to think about how would this equitably benefit those disadvantaged com uh, communities mm -hmm. at the rural level. And I think as they get access to information, because many of them, when you tell them, oh, have you entered your data? They tell us they don't have internet, but uh, they send you a message on social media. So you say, oh, you can send me on a WhatsApp message, but you don't enter the data. So increasingly, they'll have information on what is available, and the demand will be increasing. So um, the disadvantaged community would be demanding equal rights mm -hmm. with those that are advantaged, because they have access to information, and they know what you are accessing in the developed world. I'll add kind of what Dio's been, been talking about. So we know in certain countries there are some places that are easier to reach than others, you know, preventing that, that equitable approach to distributions. We're developing a, an optimization tool that basically told us that yesterday, where there are two or three sites, country not to be named, that are much harder to reach and they're getting much, a much lower level of service. To have the data analytics to point that out, to make that case to where we, we do want to be more equitable in how we're doing things. So it might take a few days longer here to make it a few days faster here is part of, of what comes out of those analytics. So I think there is some direct applicability on, on this type of thinking to, to what we're doing. I, I'd like to end this um, discussion with just one last question. We, we mentioned a lot of technologies at the beginning, and I just wanted to ask you, like, what would be the biggest technology that, so the technology that will have the biggest impact in your um, sector uh, going forward, if you could, like, just one. <laughs> I, I don't think it's there yet, but I do think artificial intelligence, if you include machine learning, will probably have the most transformative impact because uh, once you train a system, if it can self-learn and self-grow, you know, it will solve some of those. But there's so many technologies to choose from. I'll be interested in what my colleagues say. I'm going to double down on AI because um, to, your, to your point, it really is about um, de-skilling work to a point and then attaching all those de-skilled components into a self-learning cycle that allows you to, to move faster and go where you need to go on whatever uh, project you're working on. I'm, I'm on it as well. I think for us it would be being able to have a system that can connect all of those data sets and have that, that visibility across all parts of the supply chain without forcing partners to you know, modify their systems. Having a, another technology that can integrate all that on top of things would, would probably be a big game changer for us. I'll start with what is already uh, um, a common good here, but it's a unique good uh, in the developing countries. The drone technology is exciting Africa, especially given uh, um, uh, the hard to reach areas, the, you know, the flooded areas where they need medication but no transportation system can get there. So technology that will enable uh, um, supply chain to remain functional even when there is a disaster. 
that kind of technology would really uh, uh, take uh, Africa to the next level. Uh, but also I recognize that uh, uh, new technologies like a digital twin, where the physical information is translated into automated mm -hmm. information, that's going to become very critical because uh, it will make all the information available and they uh, analyzed in different uh, 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 um, uh, ways depending on the need to use it. Well, we, there's a lot of information current that we lose because it, it's not accessible. It's documented somewhere, it's somewhere, but it's not, it's not, it's not accessible. So digital twin will, will be one of the technologies that will advance our progress. Okay, uh, thank you. Now we have uh, some time for um, some questions from, from the audience, and we have some mics um, right here. So please, um, the lady in red, and <laughs> it's a movie too. It is um, red. So. And, and the gentleman in the back, please, uh, can you just identify yourself? Me first, I guess, in the red. Uh, Rebecca Villalobos, I work at PACT. Um, which is a large INGO, and I actually run a traceability and responsible sourcing program for colored gemstones in Tanzania using technology like blockchain. Um, so, Deo, obviously, I was amening everything you were saying, um, but curious to know from your perspective, you know, if we did build the perfect platform, because we heard so much about data interoperability, you know, how would you convince government and local shareholders, who we know are so critical to the input of high quality data, to take up that platform? So if you have any examples of how you've in influenced, ooh, how you've influenced uh, government stakeholders, or how you've built the capacity of local organizations or local partners to more sort of seamlessly integrate them into that data value chain. Let's take another question in the back. Yep. Hi there, my name is Philip and I'm with uh, Chevron. One of my questions for you is you all talked about the interoperability of the technology and creating a common language, especially when speaking to policymakers. But as many of you know, what we've seen is that you've got three internets going on right now. You've got the United States Silicon Valley model, the European one with GDPR, and then a Chinese style one with uh, China's great firewall, if you will. So in what way are the companies particularly engaging governments, NGOs, and other actors to bring that common language when you're seeing cleavages in the internet community and the policy community. Thank you. Okay. Uh, when you're talking about Tanzania, there are many stakeholders that I have knowledge and interest in Tanzania here. I see Kihamo here, who worked in Tanzania for several years. I think more than the six years I made in Tanzania. Uh, um, I spent six years in Tanzania before going to Ghana and Botswana. But I think back to your point, in all these countries, we've implemented some initiatives. Some have worked perfectly and others haven't. What, had made, what has made a difference um, um, in introducing a new platform is involving the policy makers in the process of developing the solution. Even if you have the solution, don't drop it on them. Develop it with them. Uh, in Ghana, what we did during the requirement gathering, we focused more on what are your current challenges? What are government challenges in terms of logistics that are, in terms of how much are you spending on uh, uh, health commodities? How much are you losing? How much donation are you missing uh, because you don't have data to guide your you know, mobilization of resources? So when we started integrating what they need, 
and modified the one network system which we bought into. Uh, it has helped government to be part and parcel of developing the system. So they don't see this as a system developed for them, but they see it as a system that is addressing their need. So that's what I summarized more in terms of change management, that don't do change management as at the end. When you have developed a solution and you're deploying it, then you start change management. No, change management should be part of the project right from inception stage. So that these are the stakeholders, you get to know their concerns. I think the challenges we have seen is that having this perception that, for example, in Africa, leaders don't want transparency, or in Africa, people don't want that people are corrupt. Mm -hmm. Not everybody along the chain is corrupt. There are people who are fed up as the other colleagues here are fed up. So when you walk along those lines, you'll find change agents that will work with you, and they will be part of the change champions right from the beginning. So uh, for the logistics management information system we developed in Tanzania, as well as in uh, the one we are developing in, in Ghana, uh, champions for change are part of the process during the development stage, and it works. Okay, the question on interoperability. i just pick up on uh, a couple of points, and I would say to you, um, you know, when you said the word corrupt, and we were talking about technology here, you know, uh, some people at our company love to use this line that uh, bits don't take bribes, right? So by taking things off either the border or a paper-based or inter-party process that is not technologically enabled, you allow the opportunity for corruption. By digitizing, creating transparency, and creating traceability, I'm telling you something you already know, I'm sure, you remove that uh, desire or opportunity for corruption. So I would say to you that a big piece of the resistance is you're eliminating an old regime by layering on a whole new set of transparency and, and, and um, um, view into a supply chain. Um, what was the second question? The, the, the interoperable systems in the in, Oh, and how are we moving? So I would just say to you that how are we moving governments to a place where they need to recognize this is the thing I mentioned earlier, the World Trade Organization is embarking on its this negotiation among 77 countries. WTO created over two decades ago has come to one agreement and that's called the Trade Facilitation Agreement that was put in place in 2017. This will be the next frontier, if I could say, where they're finally tackling the digital economy and saying, you know what, the world has changed. How do we member countries of the World Trade Organization grapple with this world? So how we're doing it in the express delivery services sector is we convened, uh, just real quick, what we call the ecosystem of commerce. So we brought the platforms in, the technology companies in, the payment companies in, the express delivery companies in, everybody that plays in this space on the commercial side and said, let's fight together. Let's first figure it out together on how to make this world a different place using technology, and then let's package it and take it to the governments and say, if you want to create policies that enable this, here's what this looks like. So we've kind of undertaken that, and I would encourage you, depending on the discipline that you're in, that you do the same. You understand your business is the best out of everybody, and, or your associations, or your disciplines. Put it on a piece of paper and take it to the World Trade Organization and say, this is how this works. Now you need to create policies that enable this to work, if you agree, and how do we create 
interoperability and standards and mutual recognition that will actually meet uh, society's needs. The only thing I'll add to that on the interoperability, there's obviously going to be cases where you do have to modify your approach for a specific country for a variety of reasons, whether it is you know, regulatory, just different consumer demands, otherwise. But from the GDPR, which I, a lot of people have been impacted by, I'm making sure when I first heard about it, I wasn't aware that it was going to be. Like we, um, so a lot of my clients are US federal clients, right? They, we, all of our projects are GDPR compliant, which has nothing to do with Europe in any way, shape, or form, but because it is the risk adverse and the penalties, and so it is consistency across the organization too, right? So where it is, there's an incentive for consistency, it will achieve. If it is too difficult or it needs to be tailored for some reason, that will just ongoing no matter on the technology it exists. You know, the only thing I'm going to add to um, the comments that we're making is, you also need to know that there's a threat that's going on, which is, to your point about the three different internets, you know, some of the world is seeing this digital world and putting up walls, right? They're saying, wait a minute, to your point about GDPR or other uh, opportunities, they're saying, let's just lock all this down. Let's keep the servers here in our country. Let's not let any of our consumers' data leave our country. If the data leaves our country, we need to know where it's going. Well, that's going in a very fast reverse motion. So at the same time that we're trying to change the world, there's some countries that are trying to say, wait a minute, in the old days, I used to have video stores that had these DVD discs, and somebody would walk in and get the DVD disc. There was thousands of stores, people were employed, they take the movie home, watch it, return it. Well, that world is gone, right? There's movie streaming, there's music streaming, there's services. They're trying to say, how do we get back to this other world? And if we can't get back there, then let's figure out a duty structure, duty meaning a tariff, on all these goods that are now flying through the cloud because they used to be hard goods and now they're virtual goods. That's not the direction that we as a society probably want to go. So again, I say to you, you really have to get involved in trying to articulate this world that we want to create and how do you make sure that governments get what they need and consumers get what they need. Any other questions? Yeah, one here, the gentleman and the yes. lady. Hi, I'm Casey. Um, I'm an intern at the State Department with the Bureau of Economic and Business Affairs. Um, as someone who's interested in um, the public sector um, and referring to Amgad's point about cross-border packages and sort of the public-private relationship, but also what was mentioned earlier about kind of policy framework and stuff like that, um, how can the government sort of support um, the private sector and work with the private sector in terms of global supply chains, emerging technology and stuff like that? Um, and as well as supporting operations abroad. Okay. Yes. Thank you. Hi, Nita Bandari. I'm with the Department of State, particularly with PEPFAR, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief. Um, so thank you for all of your comments today. Um, so, you know, big fan of innovation and leveraging technologies and products, um, particularly to make our supply chains more efficient, which I think we do need, particularly in public health. Um, but I, I struggle a little bit with scalability 
and with sustainability. And, and we've touched a little bit kind of on the sustainability angle, which is where you get governments involved. But I'd love to hear your thoughts on sort of the scalability of, of solutions and how we can really take them to scale in a way that they can make impact, particularly when in the healthcare sector you're talking about an epidemic like HIV where you're trying to reach millions upon millions of people. I'll start with the first one. I would just tell you that there's a, a digital uh, caucus. Um, there's a number of members of Congress that are really interested in figuring out how to do this. So um, we've testified, we've spent some time educating, not just on good supply chain, but again, how does this digital world help with what we're doing in the United States for, let's say, IDs, right? Health IDs and all the opportunity that is created. I, I, I read a number that there's 76,000 IDs printed a day in the United States, right? Whether it's your IRS card or other IDs on a continual basis. And there's fraud issues associated with those. So the Digital uh, Caucus is really focused on how do you use this new world of digitization as a competitive advantage and then create a comparative advantage versus other countries where we could sell these technology solutions um, uh, abroad. Um, I can't remember the name of the country, but there's um, a country in, in Europe that I think as of last year no longer issues birth certificates, right? You get a digital ID when you're born, so all new babies born as of last year are moving rapidly into this digital world and you will always have your digital ID you know, with you and your app or, so when you go to the hospitals, when you go to the doctors, all the health records are in one place, you have access to them and you have this digital footprint as you travel around the world. I like to think of it as, you know, you don't have a passport for every country you enter. You have one passport and you enter every country with that one passport. How do we get to a place where all that can work in synchronicity and we could scale it up? And the only way that we understand that would work is to have 200 some odd governments at the table to say, here are my needs, here are my needs, and here are my needs, and what's the cross-cutting way that we can resolve uh, some of those needs? And I think we've started that at WTO, and hopefully we can get it to a, a good place. So the other part I'll add on that is from a government perspective, because I've dealt with governments for like 20 years on a variety of clients, is convincing them that they don't need to build their own solution. Right? That is like the first thing is like, I don't want to share. That's why shared services, if you want to ever get into this, even with the old SAP, right, has not taken off as much as you would think in the federal government, right? Just, you know, I don't need my own solution. I can, you know, you know, share with another federal agency, maybe make joint requirements and agree on that. Or better yet, like how, and especially from a blockchain perspective, why would I establish my own blockchain if I don't need it? Why would I not leverage either an industry blockchain or a company specific and I'm just a node on that, right? What am I really gonna do so then I'm not covered, which is kind of a going a little bit into the second, with the burden of maintaining that long term, right? If I'm just a node on someone else's blockchain and they're doing the heavy lifting and I'm working with them and complying with it, that's much easier. I don't see it much different in the HIV side too, right? If you're giving someone a scaling whatever IT solution we have out there, and you push it out there, but it is hard for that end unit, um, sorry, 
end government or local government to maintain that solution, you kind of go against the whole self-reliance push that we see in development, right? Because then you've given them a very snazzy, expensive tool, right, that they can't use once you're done. So then they have become reliant on you forever because they have to maintain that moving forward. So finding that balance of is there an open source way? Is there a, maybe a simple way in some cases that they still use Excel or some other spreadsheet and they can upload the data and so you know coming at their level so it's not something they have to buy licenses for or maintain forever. Um, I'll, I'll comment on the scalability and sustainability. I think these are big issues, especially in developing countries where majority of the uh, key diseases like HIV, malaria, uh, TB are dependent on donor funding. Uh, and a number of initiatives that we are put in place uh, are partly funded by the donors. So scalability, uh, to me, some of the technologies are complementary to the existing systems. Once you make them right from the beginning that they replace 100% the existing systems, then you have challenges where some of them are not yet able to be scalable to reach um, the entire country or continent. So introducing uh, um, the new technology in a phased approach, uh, doing a proper situation analysis and understanding uh, the ICT infrastructure, because many of the technologies we are developing are dependent on the fact that uh, the ICT infrastructure exists, but it doesn't uniformly exist in all the countries. And even in each country like Ghana, it doesn't uniformly exist. So doing that uh, situation analysis and that guiding your scalability of the solutions is part of the project management. So I think including that and being transparent that uh, um, uh, this new technology would work at uh, only facilities that have access to internet, because most of the solutions we're developing, even in Ghana, the LMI system, is cloud-based. So if you don't have access to internet, then you will not use it. But now, blending that with the uh, um, uh, offline solution, whereby one, like uh, most of the facilities, at district level, which is a, a day's travel, they have access to internet. So they can work offline the whole day, but if they consider the level of effort they're gonna put in entering manual data into a report, versus working offline and in the evening or over the weekend, I go to the district level and upload. They find it more, you know, friendly, more user-friendly and more advantageous. So it's a combination of solutions, but still thinking along the technological lines. Um, the other example I can give on sustainability is a key issue, especially uh, on uh, um, functions that are greatly funded by the donors. Uh, but different governments are handling it differently. Um, I know that uh, some governments are establishing like HIV funds. Uh, in Ghana, there is national health insurance system, so HIV commodities have not been part of that national health insurance system. So the discussion is once they know the exit plan for the donors, then strategies are being worked out on how to increase uh, uh, um, uh, and extend uh, the range of products covered under the national health insurance system to uh, get those products. Unfortunately, that means also that probably people have to pay more either in terms of taxes or other ways to mobilize funds for the national health insurance system. So I think uh, for sustainability, there is a need transparency on both sides. Uh, normally, when where we work as implementing partners, when we go and tell them about sustainability, they tell us, are you the donor? 
because who told you the donors are going to live forever? Uh, they will go and they will come back. So I think transparent discussions on timelines for exit with the government helps as part of sustainability. Because once government have those perceptions that donation will be there in some way, one way or another, for some years not known, it is difficult for them to develop sustainability structures. Mm. But if they know this project is 10 years and the funds are going to trickle down to this level, by 10th year we are exiting, it will help everybody in the game to plan for that exit. Otherwise, the exit plan are not always clear. So the only uh, thing I'd add is as far as scalability, I, I want to say we're living in a different world where we might not want to think about scalability because what we're seeing is we're kind of reverting back to almost the village solutions. Before, you know, I would just take it on the commercial side. If you had to buy a good, you'd have to go through a distributor, a warehouses, a middleman, all that's gone. Right? So you as a consumer pull. Solutioning seems to also be regional. I, I, I would say to you that it's a double-edged sword. Technology could create either a bigger digital divide, like we talked about before, where the countries that don't have the capacity are f further left behind, or what we're seeing is things develop at a much rapid rate, solutioning being localized. That no longer is anybody waiting for top-down. There are local solutions that are virally growing. And I think that's a fantastic and positive thing because the old institutions are not necessarily, they're really slow boats or slow ships to turn. And these little tugboats are, are turning them because they're taking power into their own hands, which is a fantastic thing and we should just keep enabling it. Yeah. There's one question from the gentleman in the back and the lady in front of him. Is that on? Hi, I'm Riley, FHI 360 Crisis Response. I have a question for Greg. Um, I completely agree that I think our collaborative digital data sharing is really behind. And I was curious, what is your ideal platform to do that? And what are those obstacles? Why aren't we there yet? Thank you. Uh, Yoni Bach with MIT Lincoln Labs. And I wanted to push a little bit on the um, discussion about AI. And in particular, sort of if you could help paint a picture of what that actually looks like. I find this can be a catch-all term that means too many things and no one quite knows. I mean, AI could be an Excel spreadsheet. So what do you mean by that? And how do you navigate that balance between AI, which is open, accessible information to everyone, and the very real proprietary information that a company or an organization or a government needs in order to maintain its ability to do its job or its competitive advantage. Where's the boundary? And if I may, one final part to that is, what's the immediate next step that will lead us down the path to a much broader AI where the information is more readily accessible and the machine learning can actually happen? What's the step we take now in the next two to three years so that 50 years from now, it's a very different environment. Sure, so uh, the question you asked is the one we're asking ourselves right now. Mm -hmm. I don't think that there is one that's going to do that. And coincidentally, the colleague behind you from the Lincoln Lab, we're in the final stages of, of hopefully signing an interagency agreement with them to bring them in and help us figure that out. That, that as far as I know, there is no platform on the humanitarian side or the development side that crosses all sectors and all partners. 
let's figure out what that is before we start plugging in things that aren't scalable because that wasn't part of the intention. So that's, that's probably the best answer I can give you tonight. So on the AI front, right, there's lots of different, it does mean different things for different cases. And so I can give you some very concrete examples. But I first want to start on two things on AI. One is you really do have to understand the intent behind it. And so having um, an ethics and how we're planning to be using AI when you're integrating with firms who are providing it is very important. The other side of the coin is transparency and understanding the algorithms. Um, we do a lot actually um, on AI now to, to think about how the bias is in there and how is it embedded. Um, there's lots of ways you can look at this, like using, um, I was at a different session where someone taking photos on your iPhone um, with certain ethnicities of people, usually darker skinned females, it may actually not recognize you as a person, but it will everyone else in the room. So how do you get into there and really you know, look at the bias? And is it bias because it's intentional? We have to realize there are bad actors out there who will be putting that in there. Or is it bad, or is it biased just because someone didn't use it, the time to think out through what are they doing? And if you're using a truly proprietary approach and putting up your walls, as you say, and not letting anyone see what you're doing or anything behind it, you can't trust it, so you really should be wary about engaging too much on those types of AI. Our perspective is really is to keep it open, to really be able to explain it to clients and other stakeholders, because if you don't, there will be lack then on the buy-in too, right? Unless you know someone really can understand why they should be trusting this AI versus a human, there's this innate nature in us, right, you know, to want a human contact. Our best example of AI is through chatbots, right, you know, when you call in a variety of companies, whether it's Geico, et cetera, you know, you sh may think that you're chatting with a real person. There's more and more time that you are not. It's a computer and it's answering your questions and you may get referred to a real person if you have a really complex thing, but if you have something basic, right, you know, relatively basic, I'll use an example. Um, City of Miami Sewer Authority and Water Authority, if you don't have enough money to pay your bill, or it's a domestic case, but it's an interesting one for AI, they will, um, you can at request a waiver. You can do that all online by talking to their chatbot. They named her Ava. Um, it will go into the backend SAP system to see how often you've requested, if ever before you have, and then give you an answer back automatically because using business rules, just standard, not even AI, to make that answer. So using all of the technologies together is kind of, but again, you can't use that and trust that if you don't actually understand how it works. I just uh, would give you an example of AI, not as a higher learning uh, issue as this, but transactionally across borders, goods are moving on a constant basis hundreds of millions of times a day. It's the same good. But we have people at every border, Customs has people at every border, rating this piece of plastic every day, day in and day out, when it's the same piece of plastic that comes across. Why can we not automate and leverage technology to, to actually rate these goods and present them on a silver platter to authorities and then redirect the work to a higher value work. I also heard of an app, and this is blending AI and, and just um, uh, big data. And it was, I, you may have heard of this, but all of us are driving around in our taxis, Ubers, and cars with our iPhones in our pocket, and we're hitting bumps along the way. A city created an app that's measuring all those bumps in your geolocation and creating a big data algorithm and it serves up to the public works of that city where all the potholes are 
every month. So they don't have to drive around and find the potholes because millions of people every day are driving over those potholes. So they've open sourced it and let every city in the world that wants to use, I mean, that's starting to use data, artificial intelligence, and all the things that come with the fourth industrial revolution to kind of better the society that we're all living in. Thank you. Uh, thank you for the great uh, interventions. Um, this question is for uh, Amgad. Um, I wonder if Please you can... identify yourself. So, oh, sorry. sorry. Uh, my name is Manuel Claros. I work with Food for Peace and the Policy Division. My question is for Amgad. Uh, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about an existing platform that has been very successful on a UPS partnership with UNICEF that is active in 34 countries. It's called the Viva Visibility for Vaccines. Thanks. I'd love to, but I don't know enough about it. I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> One more question here, the lady. Yeah. Hi, I don't know if it's fair because Manuel and I work in the same office, so we're like stacking the questions. Um, I have a question. I work for USAID on a new team called da the Data and Technology Team. And um, it's new because as Greg pointed out, this isn't something that we've been investing resources in necessarily in the past. Others have, actually FHI 360 has been really good, but um, in general though, when you're talking about innovation and the ways that you're applying emerging technologies, a lot of what you're talking about is demand driven. So you're creating uses for these systems because people that pay you and the people that are the consumers who have agency are the ones actually initiating that and that is the impetus for innovation. And so when I think about how far behind we are, I wonder if it's also because you know we don't think of the people that we serve as consumers with the same type of agency. Not that we don't think of them as having agency, but just in general it's different, right? So we're really behind. Can you talk about how to figure out what people want? And like, how do you respond to need? How do you figure out what consumers or the people that you're serving with services actually want? Because that's another nut that I'm not sure how to crack. And we are trying to move towards people being more participants in their own aid, so. I have two minutes to solve that for you. <laughs> I would just say to you, I think, uh, you know, I think of when I go run through airports and I'm late for stuff, and this is a little bit of a ridiculous thing, but airports grapple with customer service, and it's a consumer demand thing. And, you know, I start seeing these, I'm going to call them stupid, but I shouldn't, you know, this little yellow happy face and the green face, and they're collecting data, right? They're collecting data geolocated at points that give them the understanding of what's going on with their customers and consumers. I think one of the things that we talk to to the digital caucus in the United States, these members of Congress, to your point, is how do you think of society as consuming the services that you're creating, and are they satisfied? And to your point, we're way behind. We're not even asking enough if they're satisfied, what they're dissatisfied with, and what the solution is. And again, I'm really motivated, though, because I think society is reaching a point where they're not going to wait for that. They're creating solutions that we just have to, I don't want to say commercialize, but adopt in government and say, here's what it needs to get done and how it gets done. One of the things that we do at our company is we're not going to roll the dice on everything right away. So 
I think one of the things that we found successful is you find a dissatisfaction, a gap, and you create a pilot, and you rapidly go from a pilot to a full-blown process. The more of those bonfires that you create, it turns into a big bonfire at some point, and you, you tip it. So I would, you know, I could spend more time on this, but what I've seen successful in other governments in the world is they understand their gaps, their comparative advantage, the human resources that they have, and the need, and then they figure out a way to create an alchemy of all of that to say, here's how we're gonna compete, here's how we're gonna grow, because everything has a value and we need to grow to help our consumers. So the thing I'll add to that is like, how do you get closer to them? That would be, and so there's the digital way. I mean, you can engage them in a variety of different manners. You can do social media analytics, depending on the topic and what you're saying. Is there enough mass out there in social media to try to get trends out there? Um, the other way is the exact opposite, is get closer to your clients, right? So an IBM perspective, we're not saying um, we exclusively do this, but when we wanted to develop research products, and products for Africa, we established two labs, one in South Africa, the other one in Kenya, to do research. Because there's a local field, there's a local push that you know, you will, we are not at a point where we are truly a virtual organization. And so if you wanna get in there, you have to push out physically. I mean, you don't have to do it always, but the best is kind of a blend of worlds, right? You have some that's in presence, you have some remote, because if you're doing everything, which I know aid is not, but you know, if you're doing everything from a perspective of here in DC, even if you're trying to think about the customers, you're missing out on a lot. Yeah, I, for us, we have a wealth of people out in the world, unfortunately, that could serve this purpose for us, but we don't approach it from that angle. We don't go in saying, is our customer satisfaction rating inside the supply chain doing what it needs to do? It's purely a programmatic, technical focus to do that. I would say, how do you prove to decision makers that the return on investment is going to be there? It's not going to be something that people are readily going to want to accept, but it worked in the commercial world. It was, it's a change in how that worked. Use that as kind of the leveraging point to say, hey, look, it worked here. There's no reason why it wouldn't work here as long as we apply it smartly in a way that's not going to be obtrusive and follows humanitarian principles, all the basics of what we do. But really, to me, it hinges on how can you prove that that is going to be money well spent because it may mean that somebody doesn't eat otherwise. There's a very fine balance for us to, to find in that. But I think we have to start looking at other means to gather some of that data that is probably pretty easily accessible. It's just proving to people that it's worth the, the investment you have to make. Um, thank you, Tom, Amgad, um, Greg, and Dee for, uh, for the discussion and for all of you for the questions and for coming today. And uh, well, that, that concludes our session. So thank you.